Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, our interview of the day without question on the future of global Wall Street. He was the first kid in his family to go to college. He ended up landing at Xerox, went on to Columbia University with the usual MBA, and landed at a small investment shop a million years ago. And there he built their investment research department. The II winner for, I believe it was nine, even 10 years in a row. Leon Cooperman joins us. This could be a four-hour conversation. We don't have that. So let's get to it with the gentleman from Omega. Leon, I want to talk right now about the future of Goldman Sachs. You have a beloved relationship with it. You and I have talked about this many times before. I guess they're trying to be a retail bank. We went from Lloyd over to David. How is your Goldman Sachs doing? I think they're doing very well. I, I didn't expect this question. You know, I retired from Goldman Sachs, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of 1991. So I'm gone for what, uh, 20 years, um, 91. So maybe more than 20 years, be closer to 30 years. Yeah. And so things have changed, but I have an extraordinarily high regard for the firm. They have a great culture. They're, they're, they're terrific people. But uh, in all honesty, uh, I'm not current. What do you think? Okay, that's diplomatic. I made a big mistake when I got my stock. Uh, when they went public, I gave it all to charity. And it, uh, I should have given cash and kept the stock. Well, okay, that's a good way to put it. But Leon Cooperman, <clears throat> what's so important here is this experiment of trying to do investment banking, trying to do investment research and strategy as you did in Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and also trying to be a bank. Do you think that can be a successful strategy? I'm sure if Goldman Sachs pursues it, it'll be a successful strategy. What can I say? You know, I, I don't run the, the mm -hmm. shop. When I was there, we were a private partnership. We used to laugh about the banks. Uh, and then what happened during the financial crisis in 2008, uh, we were, they were forced right. to become a bank to survive. And, you know, they'll go, with the, they'll go with the flow. You know, when I was there, they were very reluctant to get into money management. Now they're in money management with two feet. So, you know, they adapt to the environment. They're smart people. They're good people. And I would have great confidence in the firm. Leon Cooperman, Jerome Powell will speak at Jackson Hole today, a virtual Jackson Hole this week, rather, I should say. Tell me how you perceive the interest rate structure that the Fed has set. What has the Fed wrought on global Wall Street? They have created a real speculative bubble, in my opinion. Uh, I have to admit that I'm uncomfortable at the present time because not because of the virus. It's a factor. I'm uncomfortable because... Um, focus on something the market isn't focused on, and that is the amount of debt that's being created. Who pays for the party when the party is over? You know, we just celebrated our 244th birthday, and basically it took us 244 years to go from zero national debt to 21 trillion. We'll probably end this year at 27 trillion. <clears throat> that is a growth rate in debt far in excess of what the economy is growing at, and I think that that's going to be a problem down the road. Yeah, well, back in uh, and I think they, they've created a real speculative environment. You know, I, I was just looking. Give you some statistics. Apple announced their four for one split on July thirtieth. The twenty day average call volume at that time was seven twenty one thousand calls. Okay, this past Friday, 
Apple traded 2.1 million calls, three times the average of 20 days. Okay, and the stock is up 17% since the announcement of the split, and that's before this morning. Tesla announced their five for one split August 11th. Same thing, big increase in call volume. The stock is up 49% since the stock split was announced against the S&P up 1.9%. Now, the last time I checked, if somebody gave me five singles for a $5 bill, it didn't create any wealth. (laughs) Right, well, that was was the old uh, calculation. Now this is the new calculation when you've got a a big component of Robinhood investors. That's sort of one theory out there. What's riskier right now, the high-flying stocks or bonds? Well, I think no question that bonds, to me, present a uh, return-free risk. Uh, and that's what's working in favor of the stock market. What I've not fully appreciated is the what a, uh, a zero interest rate environment does for stocks. Uh, I was focused on the fact that we've had zero interest rates in Japan and Europe, and their stocks are five or six multiple points below the United States market. So I, I think low interest rates are indicative of a problem economy. You know, we've had uh, artificial support for the economy uh, since 2008. You know, it's right. uh, 13 years. And uh, I don't look at that as being a positive. I, I look at that as possibly being a negative. Uh, you're, you're Stephen Ratner, close to Mike Bloomberg, who I have enormous respect for, basically wrote an article this morning in the Times up and right. the economic recovery that isn't. You know, um, I think that well, the zero interest rates is creating a, a very speculative tone to the market. Uh, I have said for months now that we're really dealing with three markets, not one market. The first market is the FANG market. And frankly, uh, these are very fine companies, <clears throat> these technology companies whose demand has been pulled forward by at least five years due to the virus. They're not cheap. But by the historical standards of the Nifty 50 of 1972 and uh, the technology bubble of 2000, they're not in any way expensive. And people could conjure up whatever they want to conjure up. Leon, I want to go through this. And we should mention to all of you on our simulcast, we welcome you to Bloomberg Radio and Television. We are with Leon Cooperman of Omega. Of course, he's mentioned Mr. Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP, this radio and TV property as well. And also Mr. Ratner writing today an essay on the market. Steve Ratner, of course, managing uh, some of the uh, assets of Mr. Bloomberg. And of course, he's appeared with this uh, many times before. Leon Cooperman, to the world of Stephen Ratner, you learned at Columbia Business School of a 60-40 or a 60-30-10 efficient market and proper asset allocation. What is the Cooper theory, Cooperman theory given the distortions that we have now? Can you stay with, with original investment science or do you have to invent something new for the next 10 years? Look, I'm 77 years of age. I have no clients. I retired at the end of 2018, and I do what makes me comfortable. Right now, I have very, very, very few bonds. I think bonds represent a return-free risk. Uh, and I own. Uh, I was beginning to explain to you there are three markets out there. There's the FANG market, uh, richly appraised but not ridiculously appraised, okay? Yep. Then the Robinhood market, which is ridiculous, totally ridiculous, Regrettably, I said this on TV about a month ago that that mark would end in tears. And the very next day, some young man who lost yes. $70,000 yes. yes. committed suicide. Okay. When you, Carl Icahn is as bright as they come. He liquidates his position, hurts at 72 cents a share. And three weeks later, he's trading at $5. 
and you check into what's going on it's on the Robinhood uh, platform. Eastman Kodak, Robinhood platform. Tesla, Robinhood platform. So, you know, that's going to end in tears. I have no interest in that market. It's not rational to me. I don't spend time on it. The third market, there's things to be done, and that's everything else. So I give a shout out to my former partner, Sam Martini, who did great work on something called Mr. Cooper, C-O-O-P. I own it. Okay. I like it. I would add to it right here, right now. Right. He did work. He, the work he did was knowable by anybody. Okay. He's a digger. He's a smarter than the average guy. The company three weeks ago reported earnings in their second quarter, $500 million in cash earnings, which was 50% of the market value of the company in one quarter. Well, Everybody was okay. thinking about the stock being worth 12 or 13. Now they all think right. it's worth Right, but Leon, 15. just because of time, I want to circle back. We were talking about the future of Goldman Sachs, the future of global Wall Street. Can you own the banks here? And if Mr. Diamond is running the sterling performer of the banks, can you acquire shares in J.P. Morgan this morning? I, I could. I own Citibank, and I'm... Uh, I'm concerned about financial conditions generally, so I'm not adding to my banks, but I think they're probably cheap. Uh, they're a cheap group in the market. Uh, you keep perseverating about Goldman. Don't worry about Goldman. Goldman will be just fine. They, they, well, they, they'll go with the flow. They'll figure out what they got to do. All right. And they'll do, well, and they'll Leon, do it well. Well, Leon, perhaps don't worry about Goldman, but what about hedge funds? You moved to a family office. If you were starting your career out now, would you start a hedge fund or would you stay in the private realm? Would you stay away from that industry? Let me tell you what's happened, okay? Uh, and I, maybe indirectly I'll answer your question. If you came to me in 2008 and said, Lee, I want to invest in your hedge fund, and I said to you, no, you don't want to be in a hedge fund. You want to be in a relative return vehicle. Hedge funds are hedged. Basically, they have a short position. We are now in front of a 10-year bull market in the economy, a 10-year bull run in the stock market. You don't want to have any hedges on. You want to be balls out mm -hmm. investing. You would have had me arrested. That's exactly what's mm -hmm. happened. Okay, now everybody says, well, the passive indexes have beat the hedge funds. We don't want to be in the hedge funds. And I, you have to ask yourself a question. Is now the time you want to be fully invested on the long side and not have a hedge on? And I'd say, right. no, I think hedge funds make sense now. So the people that went into hedge funds in 2008 are disenchanted. But the fact is they made that decision. I retired the top. I retired due to my arthritis, uh, 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 and uh, uh, you know I wanted to have a life of my own. I'm, uh, you know, um, I'm basically well, very focused, I'm very focused on philanthropy now. You know, I, I I tell the young kids that that I meet with that you know I, I give them a quote. I got to find okay. it. Leon, we're out of time. All I can say is that's either a phenomenal backdrop in front of three guys on Madison Avenue or the island you're on. Lisa and I want to visit oh my here God, in yes. February. That's Let me explain. I, I, I am totally illiterate technologically. I pressed a button on my computer. That background appeared. I can't get rid of it. Basically, <laughs> in my home in Short Hills, New Jersey. I am a Florida resident. Uh, and so you're doing this to get you're doing this to get a tech dodge from the IRS. That's what he's doing. <laughs> I've been Florida resident for a okay. decade. I love it down there. He's, everybody, Leon Cooperman's in Florida today, and for the other 181 days, he's got to be there as well. Mr. Cooperman, thank you so much with Omega as well. Right now, Dr. Bremer joins us as well. My book of the summer is Richard Haas's Magisterial The World. It is a primer 
on our international uh, relations. Of course, Ian Bremmer knows every word of that. He joins us now because he is doing one of the coolest things in international relations. Ian Bremmer escapes every summer to Nantucket, and you think he's leading the big life, but what he's doing is leaned over a desk working like crazy on his next book. And that next book, we are in anticipation of the crisis we need. What is the crisis, Dr. Bremer, that we need? You'd like to believe uh, that it's coronavirus, right? Because it's the biggest of our lifetimes. As we all know, crises uh, do give us the opportunity to respond to things that are deeply broken. Uh, It is hard to see Uh, in this environment that we are taking advantage uh, of the opportunities this crisis affords us. So the book is all about that and other Mm -hmm. such opportunities on our horizon. What we have right now is we jump from news item to news item. This morning, Dr. Bremer, it is the Secretary of State making a convenient trip to Israel so he can speak from Jerusalem to support his president with his evangelical base. Comment on the appropriateness of a Secretary of State speaking at a convention from Jerusalem. Uh, There's not much uh, that this administration is concerned about uh, in terms of uh, symbolic appropriateness. Uh, I've never seen anyone in the White House say we couldn't do that because it wouldn't be appropriate. That's that's not the way they think. Um, And frankly, it's not the way their base uh, wants them uh, to be. But let's be clear that the U.S. relationship with Israel um, is uh, one of Trump's best in the world. Um, His foreign policy successes are more about Israel than just about anywhere else. Uh, Remember, they moved the embassy to Jerusalem. uh, So you wouldn't be surprised if uh, Pompeo is speaking from the new U.S. embassy that Many administrations had supported, but no one had done. You also have now normalization of relations between the Israelis and the UAE, something actually facilitated by uh, the Trump administration. And it looks like Pompeo is going to Sudan after that. And I, I, I think that, that my expectation is Sudan is also going to normalize. This is not going to stop with the UAE. It's actually quite something. And since we usually beat up on Trump in terms of foreign policy failings and how different leaders don't like him, this is one where they do. Forgetting about the way they do it or the discourse or the tone, what is the distinction between a Biden foreign policy and a second term Trump foreign policy? Uh, The biggest difference is probably Europe. Uh, President Trump and the entire administration believes that the EU is bad for the United States. They want to deal individually with European governments. They strongly supported Brexit. Uh, President Biden, if he became, if he won, would be the antithesis of that. He would support a stronger EU. Um, He would uh, clearly and and, uh, build up the multilateral aspects of that relationship where Trump does not. On China, Tom, the Biden administration and the Trump administration would be almost identical. And it's so interesting from the DNC last week, you didn't hear anyone talking about China, despite the fact that that's probably the single issue that exercises and animates President Trump the most internationally. And it's because quietly, when you talk to Biden's national security and foreign policy team, 
they'll have problems with the way that Trump does some of these things. But actually, in terms of, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South China Sea technology, phase one trade deal, all of that, uh, Biden and Trump are nearly identical. All right. Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group joining us right now. Let's talk about China. Mm-hmm. President Trump has come out saying that he was going to ban all transactions of U.S. businesses with the likes of Tencent and TikTok's parent company. We're seeing him perhaps dial back some of those threats, at least in private conversations. Where are we on that and how pivotal is that to the relationship between China and the U.S.? Um, it's, it's significant. I wouldn't say it's pivotal. Um, I would say Huawei is more pivotal. Huawei is the most important technology company for China. It is their national champion. They're using it to drive 5G, which is their effort to control the Internet of Things and all of the data and the monetization of that data and, and the advances in AI that come from it. And the United States is not at all dialing back. In fact, last week we saw tougher efforts against Huawei and specifically more companies uh, that would be put on watch lists if they are providing semiconductors and other critical pieces of, of, um, of, of supply to Huawei. And, you know, they have some semiconductors stored up, but within a year they're in serious trouble. So, I mean, I really do think that on every issue that matters between the U.S. and China, whether it's national security or internal human rights or whether it's the economy or tech, the relationship between the U.S. and China is heading in a bad direction. Um, and so there, it's true. I was talking to Jared Kushner a few days ago, and he was being considerably softer, I would argue, than, say, Peter Navarro on issues like um, the importance of still doing business with China, not breaking uh, tech companies' ability to engage, uh, than I would see from others like Lighthizer, like Pompeo in particular, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, um, but in general, we know where this relationship is heading, no matter who wins in November. And it's probably the most important geopolitical issue for the markets by, by a factor of magnitude. Yeah. Well, you, the way that you uh, distinguish that is, is really important. The idea that Tencent shares rallying with the idea that perhaps President Trump is softening his stance on banning these businesses. But the direction of travel is what's important to watch. Niall Ferguson, yeah. a Bloomberg opinion columnist, writing that Joe Biden could end up being a wartime president, talking about the concern that some people have that the U.S.-China tit-for-tat is going to lead to a hot war. Do you think that we are getting closer to that? No, no. I, I wrote uh, Neil after he wrote that piece and, you know, sort of said it would amuse me because, I mean, he has become a bit of a bumper on that issue. Um, I, I do think that we are in a technology cold war with the Chinese where we literally want their tech companies to fail and we will punish not just those companies, but those that work with them. But I mean, the likelihood of a hot war, first of all, the Chinese truly don't want one. They understand their asymmetric capabilities uh, compared to the United States. I mean, they're a regional military power. They're nowhere close to American capacity. But they also still understand that there's a lot in, in that we, we work on together. I mean, no matter how bad the U.S.-China relationship gets, I still think we're going to be selling them crude oil. No matter how bad it gets, I still think when we go to Walmart, we're going to be buying a lot of goods that are made in China. And and I still think that a lot of our universities are going to be working really hard to make sure that Chinese foreign students can come and pay full freight, because otherwise many of those colleges will be in a lot of trouble. So not only do I not see a hot war, 
I think there are limitations to how bad this relationship can get. And they're, and they're considerably greater than, say, with the Russians. Uh, Ian Bremer, just with the time left, I want to turn ourselves to the Levant and to the future for Mr. Erdogan. We don't have time to really dive into this correctly, but there's been three or four Erdogans across the span from 2002. Which Erdogan is affecting Greece, affecting hydrocarbons north of Crete? Which Erdogan is affecting Libya? Um, it, well, Libya, we have a ceasefire now that actually seems to be able to stick. That's a good thing. Um, and and I, I would say that Erdogan recognized that uh, overplaying his hand is only going to lead um, to military confrontation. He doesn't want the same thing has been true in Syria uh, with their claims for buffer zone, but backing away when the Russians push them hard. Um, I think the same thing is true in the East Mediterranean. I mean, you know, they're saying they're going to drill, but that's in part, it's because it's easy to beat up on the Greeks by themselves when you have divisions inside the European Union unwilling to have a common and united front against Turkey. That's been frustrating, I think, to the Greeks. Um, so the problem is that Turkey is in massive economic trouble right now. Uh, the Turkish lira, of course, um, continues to fall. Um, the, the, the indebtedness is a serious problem, um, and, uh, and, and the, the, the small and medium enterprises are doing very badly. And so if you're Erdogan and you're thinking through how you can continue to leave that country and not end up in jail, um, and a Turkish prison is not a fun place to be, right? Um, you're, you're thinking about what you can do to rally the population behind you. And a lot of this um, is overt nationalism. And bomb throwing, but it's it's not getting involved in serious military confrontation. And I do think that Erdogan is savvy enough to understand uh, how deep he doesn't want to go. Remember, remember, Tom, that you have that Turkey Russia relationship, which was totally broken. It was Erdogan that ended up apologizing with egg right, on face right. because it was hurting his economy. He, he understands that he can only go so far. Uh, Ian Bremer, thank you so much, and good writing to you uh, in Nantucket. He, of course, is with Eurasia Group. On oil, Emrita Sen of Energy Aspects. Emrita, what is the distinction right now in supply-demand dynamics on oil? What are you focused on? Well, right now, even with the storms coming, Tom, it's unfortunately still on demand and how much we are recovering, um, how far away we are from pre-2019 levels, which is a long way away. Uh, and we have built so much inventory that, yes, while these uh, storms are supportive uh, for crude in the sense that we are shutting in a lot of gas with Mexico production, it's not really going to move the needle when it comes to just the sheer volume of inventory that we still need to run down. All right, so what will move the needle? I'm looking right now. Crude traded on the NYMAX, $42.76. It's been moving in this $40 to $43 range for a while right now at the upper end of that range. What would take? What would it take to break out, and will it break out to the upside or to the downside? I mean, honestly, had it not been for the weaker dollar, given where the physical market is right now, crude would have been $5 lower. So this is very much... You know, financial market supporting the price of oil, because if you look at the contango, which really tells you how weak or strong the market is, uh, the crude curves have moved into more of a contango. You know, so, so the front month is far more depressed than futures prices. Um, we will get there. It, it, it'll take another year or so to run down this massive inventory overhang we've built over the first five months of the year. We are drawing stocks right now. The hurricanes, again, will help 
drawn out that faster. But it just will take us a good year, given that demand is not recovering in a straight line, right? There's a lot of uh, stops and starts. There are parts of the U.S. that are getting better, parts that are not. <clears throat> Even the rest of the world is the same. Too short a visit, Amrita Sen. Thank you so much for joining us today with the Energy Aspects. This is a joy. She was at Strong, which if you're in the game, everyone knows was one of the premier value houses of another time and place, and is now head of active equity at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Ann Maletti joins us now from the land of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. Uh, and um, I, I, I've got to ask right now the simple question. Are Amazon and Apple value stocks? <laughs> Well, you know, Tom, as we used to say, um, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And the market would say that you're getting a lot of value still out of these larger cap names. Certainly the price seems very high. But as you know, and as you have been talking about for months and months and months, um, investors are seeking growth in this market where there's you know, we're right. very hard to come by. We're all looking at three years, four years, five years. You as a value pro, if it's stupid, crazy pricing on so many different sectors, how far out are you rationalizing revenue and earnings growth? Those are two lines, folks, that cross out in the distance. Is Ann Maletti buying for five years from now? Well, you know, I, I think our managers really are looking three to five years out, and that's kind of typical for portfolio managers to do when they're building models. I think the interesting thing about this time is, you know, I was taught early in my career, really try to figure out what the market's telling you. And it's really difficult. It's a difficult question to answer in today's world. But I have to wonder if the market's not saying, gosh, there's a big tectonic shift happening in our economy, and it's happening at a pace that we haven't seen before, just accelerated because of this pandemic. Um, And that might be the reason for the sharp contrast between the winners and the losers in the market. And so when you look three to five years out, does it look a lot different? It doesn't mean that, you know, technology um, really drives productivity, supports profit margins, um, and drives expansions, right? And yeah. and does it mean that some other sectors that were really supportive our, of our, our economy, like travel and leisure and bricks and mortar retail, just don't anymore? Yeah. Well, and, and this is the whole idea that what we're seeing in the stock market is the reality that the future has been brought forward by 10 years uh, due to the pandemic. It's, ac- it's accelerated a lot of these changes that already were happening. As an active equity manager, how do you get an edge on that? Do you just go 50% Apple, 50% Amazon? No. In fact, when I look across the board at all of the managers that now are on the Wells Fargo Asset Management Platform, um, we have two very prominent growth teams that have done both done extremely well. One of them doesn't own Apple at all. The other one is slightly overweight Apple. And so there you take two different, you know, two different dynamics there, um, both doing well, but it's difficult as a growth manager not to be 
um, and have some exposure there. Now, they both have exposure to a lot of other names in technology. They're both overweight that space because they do believe in the power of technology driving all of those things that I talked about, profit margins, productivity, et cetera. Um, but they're also very diversified in other sectors. And I would say so are our value managers who see the U.S. manufacturing renaissance really truly happening, right? And this is not just about jobs, but it's about cost structure and margins. And so we have seen more and more manufacturing coming back to the Midwest and other places in the U.S., and it seems like that really is truly, you know, here to stay. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, there was a story uh, on on the Bloomberg over the weekend about the Kenosha region in Wisconsin, which I'm sure is uh, close to you, close. this idea that there there was actually a 25% salary increase in certain areas due to that Foxconn uh, factory that was brought to the region. Where do you see the most potential upside due to what you call the manufacturing renaissance that you see taking place? Well, I think it's going to continue to come from you know, you know, all different areas of manufacturing across the board, whether it is in tech manufacturing, but also industrial manufacturing. And so we've seen it in Wisconsin. Certainly we've seen it in the Rust Belt in Ohio and other states. Um, so Foxconn was clearly electronics, but we're seeing it um, in other places. So um, I have friends that work in the manufacturing building. You know, this isn't in great, you know, standing today, but um, auto airplane uh, manufacturing parts, um, certainly auto, automobile manufacturing yeah. parts, appliances. So um, across all industries. What is your view forward? I mean, and you know, you're so experienced at value and the conundrum of growth and value, and now heading active management where you're in brutal competition with index funds as well. Where is the where I don't mean this by value like stock fundamentals, but what's the value opportunity now for active management? How do you place yourself to outperform whatever the mandate is against index funds? I actually think this is kind of a unique time for active management to really show its true advantage. When we saw volatility levels like we saw, you know, when we saw, I'm sorry, in, in March and in April when this pandemic really hit, that's when active management truly can show its power, right? Because managers, portfolio managers and analysts can go in and analyze fundamentals and where those companies might be three to five years from now. And so more than 60% of our active managers are outperforming 62% in a five-year time frame. When you look out um, over over five years, when you look over three years, it's more than 75%. So this is a time for active to <clears throat> really shine, and you know, hopefully, taking advantage of more and vo- more volatility over past. Right. Um, will clearly showcase that. What do you do in the banks? I mean, Strong was so good at avoiding <laughs> bank tobaccos along the way. What do you do with the financials right now? 
our managers are underweight that space, and and I think it's clear that it's going to be difficult for banks to really outperform with rates with rates as low as they are, and and seemingly as low as they will be for the next couple of years. And Melody, I'm curious about the bogey that you're looking for in active management. In other words, what type of returns target for an active equity portfolio seems appropriate over the next five to ten years? You know, I think you have to look at outperforming the benchmark by two to three, outperforming your specific benchmark by two to three percent to really showcase um, the strength of active management. Now, clearly, um, you know, you have to cover your fees. That's ground one. So if you can cover your fees and beat passive, to me, that's a win. And I'm a believer in active if an active manager can do that, I'd actually rather be in active management because that's going against the crowd. And I'd rather be not with the crowd today um, than with the crowd, but ideally 2 to 3%. All right. So if you want to be against the crowd or you want to take a, have a contrarian take of some sort, what's the one popular stock right now that you'd sell? You know what? I am not, um, because of my new role and I'm not actually managing money, I'm not allowed to talk about specific stocks. I can only talk about Oh, come on. No one's listening. (laughs) It's August. We're in the the Adirondacks. We're we're doing portages. Right. Right. Lisa, I heard you get get hassled all morning from Thank you. Thank you. Tom, did you hear that? I heard that. Somebody is on my side. Anne, come back anytime. You're actually willing to take a vacation. And Tom, you need to take one. I know. That's right. School kids and work. All summer. What's sick is, Lisa, the deer flies up in the Adirondacks are like a B-52 bomber, deer <laughs> camp drum. They're even bigger out in northern Wisconsin. They're oh, like, it's true. You know, like, I spent a lot of time in northern <clears throat> Wisconsin. I'll just let you know that. I had um, I have family in Wisconsin. It's beautiful up there. Wow. Dead silence. You guys just like, <laughs> I, I, I just am confirming that, yes, there are incredible. Uh, uh, let us know, folks, what time of year should Lisa and I travel to northern Wisconsin? It's beautiful now. Okay. Yeah, Maletti, thank you so much. Uh, greatly appreciate it. With Wells Fargo Asset Management, really, really quite good on value uh, investing is there as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 